it kind of goes without saying that Ascension is not a widely celebrated Christian holiday. I hope today's worship service gives you a deeper appreciation for for its significance. While you're never going to find Ascension baskets or Ascension bunnies at your local Walgreens, nevertheless, this holiday matters every bit as much as Christmas and Easter. I would go so far to say that there would be no gospel, no good news, without the ascension of Jesus Christ. And apparently, Luke considers it rather important because he provides not one, but actually two accounts of this one event in his writings. We read the, f- the first at the beginning of the book of Acts earlier in the service, and now we read the second at the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, which was the promise of the Holy Spirit. And and just one of the reasons why we in the Nicene Creed affirm that the The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son is because you can credit this verse for that. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then Jesus led them as far as Bethany, which was about a mile and a half outside of the city walls on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, And lifting up his hands, which is a form of blessing, he blessed them, or posture of blessing, he he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, Jewish men that they were, good old-fashioned monotheists, worshipped him. They worshipped him. And then returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and we're continually in the temple, blessing God. Well, they have just said goodbye to their best friend. To the man that they had spent the last 1,095 days with, the last three years of their lives, probably never were apart from him longer than several hours Okay, maybe, maybe a couple of days when he sent them out on missionary journeys. But, but they were with him constantly, just as disciples of a Jewish rabbi would be, doing all of the service requirements that dis- disciples were expected to render to their rabbi, which was pretty much everything except for uh, untying their sandals because that was considered so demeaning that, that nobody would, not even a slave would have to, to do that They've said goodbye to their constant traveling companion of three years. 
And yet there are, are no tears, no red bloodshot eyes, no poor, poor mournful cries of abandonment. Quite to the contrary, Luke records here that these men were full of incredible joy. They walk back down the Mount of Olives, passing again through the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine the, the memories that that would have conjured up. And they are, they're full of joy. These guys are, are walking on cloud nine. They're so happy, so excited. Why is that? If you don't mind me using an illustration from Star Wars, if you go back to the original movie when Obi-Wan is in the classic, the great duel with Darth Vader there on the Death Star, and Luke Skywalker is, is watching all of this take place from um, a distance in the shuttle hangar. Near the end of that battle, Obi-Wan says, You can't win, Darth, for if you strike me down... I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. He says it in just in that voice. <laughs> then if you remember, he lifts his arms above his head in, in a sacrificial pose, and the red lightsaber slices right through him, and poof, he vanishes. And there's nothing but a pile of clothes there, a pile of brown robes on, on the floor. And we are to understand that to mean that his life has returned to the force. Well, in a similar, not identical, but similar and somewhat parallel way, the loss of Jesus' bodily presence on earth makes it possible for his power to be unleashed throughout all of the world. Like we, th we thought he was pretty, pretty powerful when he raises little girls from the dead and he, he silences and calms wicked storms on the Sea of Galilee. No, uh, that is nothing compared to what happens when this man is seated upon the throne of heaven and earth. And one of the indicators of it is the transformation in the 11 disciples. You remember the words that Jesus spoke to them at the end of the Great Commission. What did he say? He said, And lo, I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that sounds like a, a pretty nice promise, that I will always have Jesus sort of by my side. He'll always be walking with me on the, on the road of life. But when Pentecost comes in another week, which we will celebrate next Sunday, you discover that there is a twist. And that he's not simply with them, but he descends upon them and he is in them. And they have kind of all that he had in his previous life. All of his courage, eloquence, and wisdom that Jesus possessed on earth, these 11 men have it in themselves and in abundance. Men who had not an ounce of natural charisma fly out like tornadoes into the rest of the world. Golden-tongued preachers of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you have to credit the ascension of Jesus Christ for that kind of transformation. That is one, one big picture idea. What are some other uh, implications of, of the ascension? It was a week of incredible news. Actually, it was a Saturday of incredible news. 
because you probably heard um, that that Miriam Ibrahim, the Sudanese sister in Christ, who we prayed for last Sunday, um, she was was granted release, or so I understand it, from from her Sudanese prison. Boberg Dahl was freed. Interestingly enough, one of my good pastor friends, Glenn Farrell, who was previously here in Boise pastoring Sovereign Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he, he's since gone to San Francisco to pastor a church there. Uh, Bo Bergdahl's parents are Presbyterian Christians, and they attended Sovereign Redeemer. The day of Bo's capture, Glenn Farrell was in their living room praying with them and talking with them for the entirety of, of that, that day. Glenn said when he when he heard the news of it yesterday, I mean, he was just overwhelmed with joy and, and tears. So we prayed for Bo to be freed. We prayed for Miriam to be freed. And we have prayed for Saeed to be freed. And so we're just waiting for God, to, for that last domino to fall. And it got me thinking about the Ascension's relationship to him. Because of the ascension of Jesus Christ, he is able to go where absolutely no embodied, two-legged Christian can possibly go. So our brother right now is detained in some squalid prison cell on the outskirts of, of Tehran, where they typically keep political prisoners and such. And that is a place where... Literally, no Christian in the world can enter unless, you know, one of his prison guards is secretly uh, a hidden Christian, which would not surprise me in the least because God does that. But, but Saeed would seem to be entirely alone. But I can imagine Jesus Christ sort of donning his Harry Potter invisibility cloak, so to speak, and walking right through the rat-infested dungeon and saying and whispering into his ear, they can't keep me away from you. <laughs> they cannot keep... There's no such thing as an abandoned Christian man or woman. They can't keep me away from you. And one of the things we celebrate today, you may not have realized it, is that Jesus Christ is that present with Saeed Abedini, right now, pouring God's love into his heart through the Holy Spirit, reassuring him that he is not abandoned and that he who is seated on the throne will make sure that everything will turn out all right. You can imagine how difficult that must be to believe right there. Another thing that we celebrate today with the ascension, how do I put this? Um, Jesus' temptation comes full circle. So if you go back to the 40, 40 days of tempting in the wilderness, you know that Jesus, that, that probably was the, the lowest point of his 30, 35, 37 years of earthly existence. I mean, he had never been at a more vulnerable, weakened place than he was at the end of those 40 days. And it was at the end of those days that Satan comes to him. And you recall, basically, what he said was that he could make all of Jesus' dreams come true. Like, probably there was something going through Jesus' head. Is 
he knew that he was the king, maybe, and, and the son of David, and was supposed to have kingly, maybe kingly benefits. And it's almost like the devil comes right alongside him and says, and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world, the thing that should be yours. Here, here it is. I will give it to you if you simply bow down and worship me. Well, the ascension comes uh, as the 40th day of Easter. And what does Jesus get? God delivers to his son everything that was falsely promised him. All the kingdoms of the world, the father says, it is for my boy. So not only does the father get his son back, but he gets to reward his son uh, for his faithfulness, his refusal to to take any of the shortcuts. He's, he's enthroned and given absolute dominion over all of the kingdoms of the world because his son walked the difficult path of righteousness. I mean, you know as a parent like how incredible it is to reward one of your kids when they, when they take the, the really hard road. Well, Jesus Christ, he did it the right way. No shortcuts. He trusted that God would be faithful at the, at the end of it all, would be faithful to all that he had promised. So for instance, the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord promises to David that one day I will place one of your descendants on the throne of Israel. And he says, quote, your throne will be established forever. And the ascension is the ultimate fulfillment of that that the son of David makes it out of the wilderness and he is given his royal seat as he deserves at the right hand of God. I bet you never thought of it that way. (laughs) And the right hand of God. You know, what's that? (laughs) You have to remember that the right hand of God is not a geographical proximity to the to the right of God, but the right hand was, was a way of designating the position of an executive ruler, um, the place of power and of authority. And it is a place. I've spoken about it. So it's not a, the right hand isn't a geography, but there is a sense that heaven is a place, a geographical place. I've spoken about it in, in times past as though it was, it's in a different dimension. And that may be the case. But it's important that you realize that it is a place. If Jesus ascends with all of his limbs intact, if it's bodily, then the ascension must be to a place. A place that is the control room for what happens on earth. Because that's what heaven is. Heaven is basically where earth is run from. It just so happens that our man is running it. Right? Our man is not in Washington. Um, our man is not some diplomat in Tokyo. Our, our, your man is in heaven. It's the control room for, for all of the universe. So when Paul says in Romans 8.28 that God works all, all things for the good of those who love him, um, the reason that's the case is because the same Jesus Christ we fall in love with when we read about him in the Gospels, that same Jesus Christ is the one who's making all things work for good. How, how does the ascension apply when you are so 
You're fit to be tied, so tired of this junk of life. Your mattress is, is soaked with tears. You say, I'm done. Frustration boils over. You say, but the ascension is true. And I know that he will do good to me. And you say that in defiance of the way that you presently feel. Because there is, there is one who is on the throne of heaven, who is, is governing and ruling all things. And, and, and that includes all of the, the ugly things in my life. And Paul also says that you're to set your minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of, of the Father. That really, that's pretty good pastoral advice. And when you're at the end of your rope, at your wit's end, for whatever reason, you set your mind on things above, where, where what's going on up there? Rob Rayburn puts it this way. Here's what's going on. Every day, all day long, vast loads of sin are being carried away to be buried in the deepest sea. Every day, the purest and most powerful prayers are offered on your behalf. Prayers that you, you didn't have the wit or the conviction to pray for yourselves, but, but prayers that make all the difference in your life. A, a place is being prepared for you. God's palace with its rooms. He has gone to prepare that place for you. And all the while, as the world is being ruled, it is being ruled on His behalf and for your good with a view to your eternal life, always in the foreground. You have a priest. You have a king who is constantly at work on your behalf. And someday you will actually see that face to face and be overwhelmed by the recognition of all that the king had been doing for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the entire expanse of your life, and that you were utterly unaware of it as it took place. Well, I grew up in a theological tradition that was, I guess, very similar to the Left Behind series. We, we focused a lot on the end times and eschatology. Um, I am grateful for my spiritual heritage I disagree with parts of it in retrospect, but I'm truly grateful for the spiritual blessings God gave me, gave me there. I also see that, um, well, we thought that the world was going to get worse and worse, and that the Antichrist would arise, and the mark of the beast would be implanted in us through some microchip. It, we really, we believed that 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 everything was kind of going to hell. And our, our major hope was that Jesus Christ would come and rapture us before things crashed in the Great Tribulation, before those last fateful seven years, or, or, or maybe Jesus might make us hold out for three and a half years, and then we get raptured mid-trib, mid-tribulation, or maybe we'd have to go through, through it all. It, it, was a, it was a pretty pessimistic, it wasn't a very hopeful way of of how it's all going to shake out. I just wonder if there could be better things in store. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, says that Jesus is reigning in heaven right now as king. And it also says, basically, that he must reign and he will reign, quote, 
until, until all his enemies are put under his feet. And the last enemy that's described there is the enemy of death that is put under Jesus' feet through the, the resurrection. But he is going to reign, Paul says, until all of those other enemies are conquered. And it seems to say only after they're conquered will he return then to rule over a new heavens and new earth. Now, I realize hotly disputed passage, and there's lots of other interpretations out there, but the whole thing leads me very hopeful um, that Jesus' enemies will be subdued. I mean, we don't believe that they're going to be subdued by the sword, but we certainly, we hope that they'll be subdued by the gospel. And friends, it might take a long time for that to happen, for all of his enemies. 25,000 years, perhaps. But my hope is that it will happen, that it at least could very well happen. And if it does happen, the astonishing fact is, is that he has delegated that task to you. He's delegated that task to you. I want you to feel the, the challenge of that because the ascension, it does challenge us. 16th century Christian nun, Teresa of Avila, uh, famously said, one of the implications of the ascension is that Christ has no body on earth right now but yours. He has no hands on earth but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ looks out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless the people. And yours is the mouth which speaks the good news to those who are presently his enemies. I want the ascension to challenge you, not in the form of greater evangelistic guilt, but it should challenge us to be bolder because the spirit of Jesus that descended upon the apostles is a spirit that's descended on us, more courageous, more wily, more wise and crafty and thoughtful in the way that we make connections between the gospel and in our unbelieving neighbors and, and friends and family. I'll give you an example of this. I came across a great YouTube video. This, and the title of it read, Deaf Child Stunned and Overjoyed by Baseball Mascot Speaking Sign Language to Him. So the Dayton Dragons are the Class A affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. And, I mean, if you know anything about the world of minor league baseball, they, they, minor league baseball um, majors on the promotion. You know, not, not many people are going to go watch a, a minor league baseball game, but they will if, they're, if there's like the taco truck blowout. Of <laughs> or it's all-you-can-eat tacos. My friend Darren, from uh, he went to a Fresno Grizzlies game, and he said there were 25,000 people from Fresno at the taco truck blowout, the best attended game of the year. But So they... they Mascots are big in minor league baseball. This googly-eyed, uh, happy-looking dragon mascot, named appropriately enough 
heater was standing outside of the Dayton Dragon's gates when this, the parents bring out that the seven-year-old shy deaf boy. And the dragon's there, and he has his, his personal attendant, one of the employees of the, of the club, standing beside him. And the, the attendant started to sign for the boy. This, you could just see this shy little boy entering in. I mean, you know how seven-year-olds are originally naturally scared of big green mascots. <laughs> he starts to enter in and, and signs back to the employee. And then... The greatest thing in the world happens. The dragon starts to sign to him, and this boy's face just lights up. And the mother, who's filming this with her iPhone, she just starts, she's on the verge of tears because of this serendipitous discovery of somebody who understands me. Now, I believe the Christian doctrine of the ascension explains which that which most Americans intuitively believe about God. Most people already think that God understands them. That God is kind of a sympathetic, grandfatherly figure who can relate to us and knows what we're going through. But they can give you no, absolutely no explanation why that would be the case. The reason it's the case, it's almost this sentimental hangover from ancient Christianity. They have no idea why. And so... The connecting point is I can tell you why. You are onto something here. You are following little bread clues or uh, bread clumps. You're blues cluesing it. <laughs> There's a reason why you feel this way. It is because a human being is ruling the universe. So, yes, someone who shares your own flesh and blood is there and understands you and has a has a profound knowledge of who you are and what you're about. The tragedy is that that doesn't bring you to tears of joy. The connecting point, you say, for you, it's just this kind of distant theoretical knowledge that there is a God who understands me. But for me, um, as a Christian, I know that my name is written on his hands. Uh, I know his name, and he knows mine. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. And uh, if, if that doctrine has captured your heart, then it is, is profoundly personal and moving. You communicate that to them. So, don't... I don't want you to feel evangelistic guilt. I just want you to make the gospel known through connecting things that people already maybe intuitively know or sentimentally know to things that are objectively true in and through Jesus Christ. All right, finally, the last passage I want to reflect on is in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. I'm going to take a stab at the vision that's recorded at the beginning of Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman dressed all in sunlight, standing on the moon and crowned with 12 stars. She was giving birth to a child, to a son, and cried out in the pain of childbirth. And then... Behold, another sign alongside the first, 
a huge and fiery dragon. A, a mean dragon this time. <laughs> he had seven heads and ten horns. A crown on each of the seven heads. With one flick of his giant tail, he knocked a third of the stars from the sky and dumped them on earth. And then the dragon crouched before the woman in childbirth, poised to eat up the child when it came. The woman gave birth to a son, to a son who will shepherd all nations with an iron rod. But then her child was caught up to God and to God's throne. The woman fled into the wilderness and it goes on and there's this flood and, and, and the woman was delivered from the dragon and says, and then the dragon became furious and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to venture a guess as to what all of the details mean, the moon and the, what, the 12 stars and the sunlight. I have hunches, but... But what we do know is that you have an Eve-like, Adam and Eve, Eve-like figure who gives birth to an apparent, apparently defenseless newborn son. And you have a mighty dragon who wants to devour this newborn son, but not so fast because the son, in, in a moment, uh, in the f- twinkling of an eye, in the, in the flash of lightning, he is uh, raised up to the throne of God. And how does the dragon respond? He is furious. So he tries then to, to eat, to devour the Eve-like figure. And he's thwarted in that attempt. So what does the dragon do? Does, does, he, does, he take his, does he pick up his ball and take it home and, and just give up on the whole endeavor? Does he stop fighting? He just turns on, on the church. He couldn't kill the king, so he tries to kill the king's son's and daughters. And I think that's one of the most neglected implications of the ascension. It's a weird irony that Jesus has gone victoriously into heaven to rule all things, and at the same time, a dragon is making war on us. We would think that if Jesus had gone to heaven, it ought to be a bit heavenly down here. <laughs> uh, I mean, if he's the king, he would make... No, it's ironic. You have this victorious conclusion that leads to a battle that is just beginning. And so if it feels tough, if life feels tough as a Christian, uh, the good news is that there's not something wrong with you. There's something right with you. (laughs) There's a battle going on, and you are the target. All I could say to you is, is keep reading the story, turning page after page until you come to the end because there's a there's a great conclusion and in the meantime as the apostle paul says fight the good fight Uh, take hold of eternal life as paul says to timothy fight the good fight in the name of the father and of the ascended son and of the the holy spirit amen